0: February 2005, Tanya Herman brutally attacked and attempted to kill Maria Corp, the wife of her boyfriend. As Maria lay in a coma in the hospital, Tanya confessed that she had committed the crime but pointed the finger at her boyfriend, Joe Corp, as the mastermind. But would anyone believe her? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crimelines, and welcome back to part two of the Maria Corp case. If you have not listened to the first episode, I definitely recommend doing that so you can catch up, and so this episode makes some sense. For a brief refresher, Maria Corp disappeared on February 9th, 2005. On February 13th, Maria's car was found, and when they popped the trunk... The police believed they had found the body of the 50-year-old mother of two. However, Maria was breathing. She was rushed to the hospital. But the combination of brain damage from being strangled, the dehydration from being in the car for four days, that left Maria unresponsive and in critical condition. On February 16th, after the police caught a confession on a wire, Maria's husband, Joe Corp, and his mistress, Tanya Herman, were arrested and charged with attempted murder. When Tanya sat for the police interview after her arrest, she gave a full confession. The police had already heard parts of this when her brother, Steve, wore a wire to talk to her. Tanya went on and made another statement in June of that same year. For the sake of clarity, I'm going to combine the two statements to present the full story. And that is the full story according to Tanya Herman. Tanya said the plan to kill Maria was set up by Joe. He was going to pick Tanya up very early in the morning and drive her to his house. Tanya was then to hide in the garage and catch Maria by surprise as she left for work. And since Joe left for work before Maria, he would have an alibi. And there would be no evidence Tanya was involved since her car and her had not been seen in the area. Tanya just had to be careful to not leave forensic evidence behind. And whatever she did leave behind had to be designed to confuse the police. So Joe packed a backpack of what Tanya would need. Among these items were a swim cap and a ski mask to keep her hair from shedding or getting pulled out. She also needed gloves and Joe gave her a pair of his shoes to wear so that any footprints that might be detected would be too large to connect back to a woman, back to Tanya. Tanya said Joe was so sure that they would get away with this that she was completely convinced he was right. In spite of the fact that she was the other woman in a love triangle and would be at or near the top of the suspect list. She believed it in spite of the fact that she expressed wishing Maria would go away or leave Joe alone to numerous people. Even still, this was the taking of a life. Getting away with it was only one consideration. Going through with it was an entirely different thing, and Tanya did not think she could. When Joe came over the night before with all of the things she would need, Tanya told him she didn't think she could do it. But Joe laid it out for her. If he left Maria, she would expose some illegal thing he had done that she was holding over his head. He would go to jail, and they could not be together. But if he stayed with Maria and he avoided jail, they still couldn't be together because Maria was not going to tolerate it any longer. As long as Maria was alive, she would keep Joe and Tanya apart one way or the other. So the next day, when Joe showed up to bring Tanya to the house, she got dressed in dark clothes, the swimming cap, and the shoes. She left her eight-year-old daughter home alone sleeping while she went to go try to kill someone. In the bag that Joe gave her, Tanya found a strap from another bag that Joe wanted her to use in the attack. They arrived at Joe's house around 5.50 a.m. and pulled into the garage. Tanya got out and crouched down out of sight. Joe went into the house and acted like it was a normal day getting ready for work. Tanya said she did hear Maria and Joe bicker a little bit from the garage. A little after 6 a.m., Joe went into the garage to go to work. He asked Tanya how much she loved him and reminded her that Maria could not leave the garage alive. Then he got into his car and left for work around 6.30, Maria went down to the garage to go to work herself. She put her stuff in the car, and as she started getting into the driver's seat, Tanya came out of a corner and managed to immediately get the strap around Maria's neck. Maria and Tanya were matched in their athleticism. Both were in great shape, and both were very strong. So when Maria fought back, there was a fight. But Tanya had two advantages. One, she was seven inches or 18 centimeters taller than Maria, and two, she caught her by surprise. Even so, Maria managed to get her hand under the strap to prevent Tanya from tightening it around her neck. During their struggle, Maria ended up pulling off the ski mask, and she knew it was Tanya who was attacking her. With her hand under the strap, Maria managed to get enough of a breath to yell out for her daughter, Laura, who was sleeping. And this may have been the sound that woke Laura up, because she did report hearing a muffled yell around this time. She even walked around the house to see where the sound had come from, but didn't find anything. Eventually, Tanya got Maria onto the floor and, being over her, pulled the strap until she noticed some blood. The blood was coming from Maria's mouth and or nose, and whether it was from the strangulation or the fight, Tanya didn't know, but it snapped her out of whatever let her go through with the murder. Suddenly, the sight of the blood cut through whatever adrenaline was happening, and the reality of what she had done, what she was doing, hit her, and she stopped. But at this point, Tanya thought it was too late and that Maria was dead. So Tanya continued with the plan. She lifted Maria and put her into the trunk. Then she tried to grab as much stuff as she could, like the strap from the bag, the ski mask or balaclava that had been ripped off, and then she left the house driving Maria's car. As she drove, Tanya thought she heard a noise from the trunk. Not anything like banging, but more like a groan, a moan, maybe even just a loud exhale. It occurred to her that maybe Maria was still alive, but she also wondered if it was in her head, since the noise stopped pretty quickly. Tanya said she didn't know where she was going to leave the car. She just drove, and eventually she ended up at the Shrine of Remembrance. After parking the car, Tanya then took some of Maria's items from her purse, again according to her at Joe's instruction. He had told her to remove Maria's ID and her cell phone and anything that would identify her, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the car itself would have identified her, so I'm not sure the logic here. Tanya then left on foot, running from the scene. While running, she had Maria's phone and the phone rang, so Tanya panicked and she threw it over a bridge. She did say that she considered calling the police to give an anonymous tip to the car's location, but she didn't have any change for a payphone. But emergency calling is free from payphones, at least it is here in the U.S. So I checked with some Australian listeners, thank you, you know who you are, and 000 is free in Australia as well. It was pointed out that it's possible that not everyone knew this, so while we can't excuse it in the moment, the excuse really doesn't hold up after Tanya then proceeded to not call triple zero, even after having access to change later. Anyway, Tanya ran to her brother's place of work, and she got a ride home with him in time to take her daughter to school, Only a little bit late. Tanya then called Joe and insisted on meeting with him during his break. She told him she wasn't sure Maria was dead, but he said she surely was. He then told her to burn the backpack and everything in it, and she handed over the keys to Maria's car to Joe. Tanya then brought a gas can to a secluded spot to burn everything and was home in time to pick up her daughter. Several hours later, at 1 a.m., after the police had taken the missing person's report, Joe went over to Tanya's house, and he was angry. Tanya had not realized how much blood was left at the scene after the fight, so she didn't tell Joe about the blood. It was on the garage floor, and it was on Joe's shoes, the ones she wore. Joe was having trouble getting all of the blood off the garage floor, and he was worried about it because the police were surely going to do a deeper, more thorough search of the home soon. Joe gave Tanya his shoes plus the stuff he had used to try to get the blood up off the garage floor, and he told Tanya to get rid of it all. He then said he was going to find Maria's car. He didn't say why, but Tanya assumed it was to make sure Maria was dead. But Tanya did not know if Joe went to the car that night or not because he never said. Later in the day on the 10th, so the day after the attack, Tanya dug a hole at the park across the street from her house while her daughter played nearby. She buried the shoes and some other stuff there. Joe told the police he was going over to Tanya's house that day to tell her to leave him alone. Their relationship was over. And Tanya said, yes, he did go over to her house, except that's not at all what he said. Instead, Joe and Tanya decided to start using codes in their communications with each other. They had some keywords that they would use to indicate where to meet up. It was something that they had done previously when Maria didn't know they were seeing each other and they were still trying to cover it up. Over the next couple of days, the two did meet a couple of times and they spoke on the phone, but much less than usual. Tanya could sense the relationship was waning, at least on Joe's side. And this was backed up by the phone records. Before Maria's disappearance, the two called each other hundreds of times each every single week. In the week after Maria's disappearance, there were fewer than 100 calls total, and the majority were Tanya calling Joe. Tanya expressed to the police that she was upset and she indicated at least some remorse over everything that had happened, though at that point it seemed difficult to untangle what was remorse for nearly killing someone and what was upset over losing Joe but Tanya repeated over and over again that everything she did was directed by Joe. She hardly knew half the plan until the day of the attack, and some things were a panic decision, like where to leave Maria's car and throwing her phone off the bridge. This is contradicted by her brother's statement. Steve had given a very similar recounting of the murder plan when he went to the police. And he said Tanya told it to him a day or two before it happened. But now, to the police, Tanya is saying she didn't actually know the plan a day or two in advance and denied the conversation with Steve even happened. She didn't tell him everything until after. And there were a few small holes in her story that made it seem like perhaps she was more involved in the planning. Like Tanya said, Joe gave her gloves to wear, but the gloves turned out to be Tanya's gloves. So what she's saying is Joe took her gloves from her and then gave them back to her. But even with these little things, Tanya stuck to her story that this was Joe all the way. She was manipulated, into acting on his behalf. And putting aside the accusations against Joe for one minute, let's just look at what Tanya herself said happened. We know a confession is only as good as the evidence to back it up. Well, Tanya had the evidence. She led police to where she had buried the bloodstained shoes. She led them to where the fire was and they were able to find the metal from the burned bag strap. She even gave them the bleach container from what Joe used to clean up the blood because he had left it under her sink. The police were able to find CCTV footage that showed Tanya running along the path she said she did when she went from the car to her brother's workplace. And then there's the luminol testing In the garage, it showed the cleaned-up blood. What Tanya did not have was proof Joe was involved. There was no email, no text, no recorded phone call, no Post-it note, nothing. No witnesses saying that they saw Joe pick Tanya up that morning. Of course, it was very early, but no one saw him there. Any case against him was going to be circumstantial and would have to rely very heavily on Tanya's testimony. And we know the testimony of a co-conspirator who could be painted as a spurned lover bent on revenge, that was not going to make the strongest court case against Joe. And Joe wasn't going to make it easy on the police either. Joe's statement was much more succinct than Tanya's. On the advice of his attorney, he had no comment. But to others in Joe's life, he completely denied involvement. Tanya had done it, she did it alone to get Maria out of the way, and she was implicating him because he had ended things. But the police were not buying it. And it didn't seem the motive Tanya assigned to him made a lot of sense. I mean, it made sense to her. She believed Joe loved her and wanted Maria out of the way so the two could have a future together. But the police were not so convinced that was Joe's motive. After all, Joe had withdrawn from Tanya pretty quickly after the attack. He hadn't even been faithful to her during his affair with her. He was with Maria even though he told Tanya that they no longer had sex. He slept with other women. He even once faked his own death to go be with another woman. Killing his wife to be with Tanya didn't really fit, since it didn't look like he wanted to be with Tanya, or not solely. The motive, according to the authorities, for Joe was actually money. It turned out that Joe and Maria were very deeply in debt very deeply. Their income did not even come close to covering their spending habits, so they fell into credit card debt. They eventually had gotten to the point where they were barely covering the interest payments on those credit cards. They were in that horrible debt cycle, and it would have taken a lot to dig out of it. If Joe and Maria divorced, Joe would still be responsible for at least some of those debts, maybe lose their house, and almost surely have to pay child support. But if Maria died, he would get the house, he would get Maria's life insurance policy, he would get her retirement fund, and that could cover their debts, And perhaps Tanya going to jail was part of Joe's plan as well. Or maybe it was just a get-out-of-jail-free card that he was holding on to. If the police caught on to what was going on, he could point to Tanya and blame her. She's the one who did this. Any physical evidence will point at her, and there was no proof Joe was involved. And that was his legal defense strategy. But if Joe was involved, like Tanya said, why did he think she wouldn't roll over on him when it was clear that he was leaving her or leaving her out to dry? Maybe Joe thought Tanya's own sense of self-preservation would keep her quiet. She couldn't take him down without taking herself down. Maybe he underestimated how hurt Tanya was and didn't realize she was willing to go to prison to get back at him. But personally, my opinion only, what I think Joe underestimated was how much guilt Tanya would genuinely feel over her actions. I think she was hurt by Joe, and that's why she didn't try to protect him by taking the blame herself. But I honestly believe guilt and remorse are what really led to Tanya's confession. And after the arrests and Tanya's confession was taken, the police did search both houses again for more evidence. In Joe's shed, the police found several notes that appeared to be suicide notes. They were written by Joe and were dated the day before Maria was found. In the note written to Maria, he indicated that he didn't know where she was and he was sorry for whatever he did to ruin their perfect marriage. Joe also had left notes to his stepdaughter, his son with Maria, his children from his first marriage, and his parents. Also found in the shed were a bunch of stolen tools from his job. They found additional stolen items from his workplace in the house. And then they found a forged note on the letterhead from the company Joe worked for saying that Joe could use a company fuel card on a second vehicle. And this was, of course, his personal vehicle it was clear the letter was forged since he misspelled the name of the accounts manager. When this came to light, Joe was fired from his job of 30 years and he was charged with four counts of theft. That's on top of the attempted murder charges. And it was a big question in this case if or when those attempted murder charges could be upgraded to murder. Maria was still alive, but her condition never stabilized. Soon it became clear that she had no hope of recovery. Maria was breathing on her own, but that's pretty much all she did. A feeding tube was keeping her alive, and she remained unresponsive. Like most places in the world, the state of Victoria does have a process for the courts to appoint a guardian for someone who cannot make their own decisions. When Maria survived those first weeks and it looked like she might survive for some time, it was determined she needed someone to make both medical decisions and financial decisions. Maria's daughter, Laura, was appointed to be the administrator of the estate so that she could keep their lives afloat but she absolutely 100% did not want the guardianship. The court would have given it to her, but she declined it. She did not want to be in the position to make end-of-life decisions, particularly in light of the criminal implications and also the public stage this was playing out on. There was some interest expressed on the part of some of Joe Corp's family in taking on that role, but the court shut that down. Instead, the Victorian public advocate was appointed. At the time, he was a man named Julian Gardner. For those who don't know, which is me, I'm the person who didn't know this, the governor of the state of Victoria appoints a public advocate to a seven-year term. The public advocate is an attorney whose job is to protect the legal rights of Victorians who are over the age of 18 and live with a disability. Taking on legal guardianship in some cases is necessary, like this one, but they also do things like intervene in legal proceedings, They are a liaison with other government agencies on behalf of disabled adults in the state. And Julian Gardner, in particular, is a well-respected human rights attorney. In this case, Gardner had to take into account a number of things. What were Maria's wishes for end-of-life care had she ever expressed them to anyone? What were the teachings of the Catholic Church, of which she belonged? What were her chances of long-term survival? And to a much lesser extent, what were the legal implications in the criminal case? But it definitely sounds like that was pretty close to the bottom of his list. Maria's wishes and best interests were what he primarily concerned himself with but the possible murder charge was at the top of the list for the two defendants and the state of Victoria. Should they move forward on the attempted murder case or hold off and see if it would become a murder case? In June 2005, Maria was still alive. Tanya had already agreed to plead guilty in court to attempted murder and testify against Joe. So that's exactly what happened. She pleaded guilty. At the sentencing hearing, Tanya's defense team kept pointing the finger at Joe, saying that Tanya was not the calculated killer the prosecution was trying to make her out to be. And in an attempt to show that Tanya was highly susceptible to manipulation, they covered much of her past and had a psychologist testify. Tanya seemed from the outside to have a normal childhood until the age of eight. That's when she began experiencing sexual abuse repeatedly for the next six years. At the age of 21, Tanya married an older man, who she thought would take care of her, but it lasted just a few months. She then entered a long-term partnership, which resulted in the birth of her first daughter in 1989. Then after Tanya and her daughter's father split up, Tanya worked to support them, and it took a lot. She would take jobs cleaning offices starting at 5 a.m. and finish up in time to show up for her own 9-to-5 job. Tanya then met her second husband, Paul Herman, and they went on to have a daughter together in 1996. During the marriage, Tanya did in-home daycare. Though she was investigated after a child ended up breaking a leg in her care, she was cleared of any wrongdoing. The marriage to Paul was tumultuous, as had been her partnership with her other daughter's father. Tanya said Paul was physically aggressive towards her, particularly when he drank too much. After they separated in 2002, Tanya's older daughter decided to go move in with her father something that was very hard for Tanya and felt like a rejection. Tanya worked as a server at a restaurant when she met Joe in the chat room. When she moved to live near him in October 2004, she didn't have a job. Joe was going to take care of her, and he treated her daughter well, which was what she was seeking in all these other partners. According to the psychologist, the sexual abuse Tanya experienced wired her to be attracted to men who displayed, in his words, strong dysfunctional virility, and Tanya confused intimacy with pain. Meeting Joe on the heels of her third breakdown of a long-term relationship and her daughter moving out left her vulnerable to his particular personality type, the charmer who could always talk his way into and then back out of trouble. This set up an unhealthy power dynamic where Joe had the control and Tanya didn't. Tanya was also diagnosed with dependent personality disorder. People with this disorder often find themselves in abusive relationships the signs or symptoms include avoidance of personal responsibility, difficulty being alone, oversensitivity to criticism, lack of self-confidence, fear of abandonment, and a sense of helplessness when a relationship ends. Tanya's dependence on Joe and her fear of losing him influenced her decisions is the bottom line of the psych report. Tanya pleaded guilty so she wasn't trying to say she wasn't responsible for what happened because of her mental state. She was not going to defend it by saying her childhood trauma turned her into a killer. That was not what her defense was saying at all. Tanya took responsibility and admitted what she had done. This information about Tanya and her background and her mental health were only being offered as mitigating circumstances when deciding her sentence. It's not clear how much it influenced the final decision here. The maximum Tanya was facing was 25 years, but pleading guilty goes a long way. And not just pleading guilty on the eve of trial, but doing so early. Tanya confessed, she cooperated, she pleaded guilty. She was showing that she was willing to take responsibility and accept the consequences fully and immediately. On July 1st, 2005, Tanya was sentenced to 12 years with parole eligibility coming at the nine-year mark. Also in July, Julian Gardner was nearing a decision on what the next steps were to take in regards to Maria's care. She had no cognitive function She didn't communicate, and she was getting worse. In spite of being on a feeding tube and given a specific number of calories a day, Maria began losing weight, which was a sign that her body was no longer absorbing the nutrition given to her through the peg tube. The doctors told Gardner that Maria was dying. Towards the end of life, Feeding tubes can prolong someone's time, but they can also cause pain and discomfort to the patient, particularly if they're not working. Maria was in no state to be able to express discomfort. Gardner chose to bring in a doctor from outside of the hospital to give a second opinion on Maria's condition and medical advice on how to proceed and he basically concurred with the previous doctors. And Gardner did not only look at the physical side, but also the spiritual. He called two Catholic ethicists to give their viewpoint. What they believed would be in line with the church would be the closest Gardner could get to knowing what Maria would want and what Maria believed. When the ethicists looked at the information, they said they saw no contradiction with the removal of the feeding tube, since most of the nutrients were not being absorbed anyway. There was very little support being provided. So the decision was made to remove Maria's feeding tube, and it was set to be taken out on July 27th. When this was made public, there were right-to-life protests outside of the hospital, and a lot of people compared the case to the case of Terry Schiavo here in the U.S. This actually happened the same year. Terry died in March 2005, about six weeks after Maria's attack. For some background on Terry's case, in 1990, at the age of 26, Terry Shivo had a massive heart attack. Though she was resuscitated, the lack of oxygen left her in a coma. She never regained responsiveness. The family was told the heartbreaking news that she had post-coma unresponsiveness, which is to say she was in a persistent vegetative state. Though her husband and parents tried a number of treatments to try to bring her back or give her some functionality in life, none of it worked. Terry had very little brain activity except for automatic things like breathing. She was being kept alive by a feeding tube. Her husband, Michael, was her guardian, and he petitioned in 1998 to have Terry's feeding tube removed so that she could die with what he believed was dignity. This started a long legal back and forth over the issue as Terry's parents adamantly objected. It then became a nationwide and, I'm now learning, an international debate over the right to life versus the right to die. All of the legal back and forth, politicians getting involved, new laws being created, it all ended in March 2005 when Terry's feeding tube was removed and she passed away. Her autopsy confirmed the previous diagnosis as to the extent of her brain damage. Julian Gardner, Maria's guardian, however, says the comparison to Terry Schivo is very much an imperfect one. Terry's condition was largely stable and had been for years. Aside from the effects of being immobile for 15 years, she wasn't in terrible health. Maria, on the other hand, was at the end of her life, with or without the feeding tube. Her organs were shutting down. She wasn't absorbing nutrients. Removing the feeding tube hopefully allowed for a more peaceful passing In her situation, if it sped death up, it wasn't by much. People make end-of-life decisions like this pretty regularly without it becoming a nationwide debate. Another decision Gardner made was to allow Joe to visit Maria and say goodbye. Gardner said that decision was not for Joe's sake, but because he felt it was something Maria would have wanted. Again. Step by step through this entire thing, Gardner kept Maria at the center of his decision-making. Maria had not only tried very hard to keep her marriage together, she had very strong beliefs in regards to things like forgiveness and compassion. Gardner believed it was in Maria's best interest to allow family to come say goodbye. And since there's a presumption of innocence here, there was no real reason to exclude Joe. On July 27th, Joe, who was out on bond, visited Maria for the first and last time since her attack. Joe had initially expressed opposition to removing the feeding tube. But when he saw Maria in the hospital and saw the condition she was in, he realized the Maria he knew was already gone and it looked like he had changed his mind, but then he later expressed that they were killing his wife, so he may have gone back and forth on that, which is honestly not uncommon. After the visit with Maria, everyone noted that Joe sunk into a deep depression. In early August, after the feeding tube had been removed, but before Maria's death, Joe had his committal hearing. This was to determine if there was enough evidence to go to trial. Tanya's brother Steve testified as to what he knew, and when Joe's attorney cross-examined him, he gave the impression he thought Steve may be more involved than he acknowledged. For instance, Steve usually took the train to work, but that day, he just so happened to use the car, which gave him a way to help Tanya get home. Plus, he didn't go to the police when Tanya supposedly said she was going to kill Maria or even after she told him she did it. Only after he thought Joe was going to sell her out did he decide to go to the police. Now, this is just speculation and there is no evidence Steve had anything to do with Maria's attack. But the attorney did get a good answer from Steve when he asked why Steve didn't go to the police. Steve replied that he didn't believe Tanya because she made up a lot of things. The lawyer then asked if Tanya was a good liar, and Steve said, very good. Of course, Tanya was a solid 75% of the case against Joe, so painting her as a liar was a good strategic decision by the defense, and they got one of the crown witnesses to identify her as such. Joe's brother, Gust, also testified, and he ended up denying the statement he had initially made to the police that implicated his brother. Things like Joe wanting to know if $20,000 was enough for a hit, and a bunch of statements Maria made indicating Joe may have been trying to kill her. Gust told the court that he was functionally illiterate, so he didn't know if the police wrote down what he had actually said. The court recessed while someone sat down with Gust, helped him go over his statement, and find the parts that he wanted corrected. Some of the changes were minor, but this is where he walked back on the statement about the $20,000 for a hit. If you remember from part one, Gust claimed he actually said Joe was upset about Maria giving away $20,000 to a mystic spiritual leader she followed, and Joe was so mad he thought he could hit her, not hire a hit man. He also said the things that Maria said that indicated Joe may have been trying to kill her had only come from Maria, and he now believed she had lied to him. At this committal hearing, Tanya testified, and she recounted her confession. And the cross-examination was designed to pick apart her statement, and there were a few good points made in there. One was about Maria's handbag being turned over on the floor— Tanya had given two stories on that. One time she said she had accidentally grabbed the bag and knocked it over. Then another time she said, actually, that was another part of Joe's plan, that she was supposed to take the wallet and the ID. And that's why it was knocked over. They were trying to say that Tanya looked at ways to implicate Joe, even in parts of the story where she hadn't implicated him before. The defense accused her of committing the crime on her own. She wanted Joe to herself, but he went back to Maria and reconciled with her. The only way he was going to come back to Tanya again was if Maria was out of the picture. But Tanya held firm against the cross-examination. She repeated that everything she did was on Joe's orders and she didn't even know the plan until right before it happened. When she was asked why her brother said, She told him the whole plan ahead of time. Tanya said Steve had memory issues from an accident. She had never told him what happened until after, and he was confusing it. The hearing lasted about three days, and the magistrate ruled that there was enough evidence to take 47-year-old Joe Corp to trial. Within a couple of days of this, 50-year-old Maria died in the early morning on August 5th, 2005. And now the public debate over the end-of-life decisions made in her case turned into a conversation about the charges against Joe. He was going to trial for attempted murder charges. Could they be changed and presented to the court as murder charges? The legal issue... That needs to be answered is one of causation. So a listener recently sent in a case suggestion for me that I think really illustrates this well, and it's the death of Reginald Day. It is on my suggestion list to do a full episode, possibly, but it really applies here, so I wanted to bring it up. In 2011, Reginald was stabbed in his left flank he was rushed to the hospital where he underwent surgery to repair the damage, and he had a good prognosis. Though his vitals were stable, Reginald ended up being transferred to the surgical ICU after showing signs of agitation that were believed to be delirium tremens due to alcohol withdrawal. While in the ICU, the doctor ordered a CAT scan With contrast for Reginald's abdomen to make sure that there weren't any additional internal cuts they missed, they placed a nasogastric tube to administer the contrast. NG tubes go through the nose and down the throat, and they can cause discomfort, and they can cause gagging. After the NG tube was placed, Reginald gagged and threw up, and then he aspirated on it. He needed to be intubated. The first intubation was unsuccessful. It went down Reginald's esophagus rather than his trachea. They did manage to intubate him successfully a second time, but it was too late by the time they noticed the misplacement and he suffered irreversible brain damage. He later died when he was removed from life support. So the question for the legal system was if Reginald was murdered or not. He did not die from the stab wound. He didn't even die from an infection from the stab wound. He likely aspirated due to his withdrawal from alcohol, not the stab wound. But if he hadn't been stabbed, he wouldn't have been in the hospital to begin with, and he wouldn't have needed the CAT scan that required the nasogastric tube. And Reginald would still be alive, but for that stabbing. Then again, if the hospital had more effectively treated his withdrawal symptoms or had managed to intubate him correctly the first time, he also would probably still be alive. So, is the chain from the stab wound to his death strong enough to support a murder charge, or did the hospital's actions interrupt that chain? Reginald's case clearly has more room for debate than Maria's case. Maria definitely died from having been strangled and placed in a trunk for days. But Reginald's case very clearly shows us those steps that need to be walked through when there is a space of time and other actors involved between the attack and the death. The role of the hospital's care, the guardian's decisions, and other contributing factors to Maria's death would have to be parsed. And with this hanging over everyone, Maria Corp's funeral was held on August 12th, 2005, six months after she was found in the trunk of her car. Her children released doves in front of the estimated 300 mourners in attendance. Many of Joe's family members were there, but Joe himself was not. He was actually not allowed to be there. A condition of his bail was that he had to stay away from Laura and Damien. And obviously, they were at their mother's funeral. Joe could have fought this, but he chose not to. He worried his attendance would turn the event into more of a media circus than it already was. The media had to be instructed not to enter the church for the actual ceremony so just imagine if Joe had shown up. Instead, he hosted his own memorial service at the family home the weekend before the funeral, and the day before, he was allowed to go to the funeral home for a viewing and a chance to say goodbye. On the night of Maria's funeral, Joe began texting and calling people thanking them for their support. One person he texted was his ex-wife, Leone. She could tell that he was upset, and at 9.27, he texted her one word, goodbye. Leone texted back and said, where are you going? Don't say orange. Orange referred to a length of orange rope Joe had in his shed. At some point in the past, maybe more than once, he referred to this orange length of rope in the sense of making a noose. When Joe replied to Leonie's text, he just wrote the word orange. Leonie called him and begged him to stop and think about what he was doing. She said she was going to head over to him right then, but Joe told her that Maria was calling to him, and by the time Leonie arrived, it would be too late. Realizing that he was right and she was too far away, she called Joe's brother, Gust. He lived pretty close, and he said he would get over there. At 9.30, Joe texted his attorney, thanking her for her help. When she saw the text, she called him and stayed on the phone with him for a while, trying to talk him down. As she was talking to him, Gust arrived. He called the police, but they were already on their way. Someone else had called them, and this was around 10 p.m. Gust decided not to go into the shed because he was afraid he would find his brother dead. He wouldn't have because Joe was still alive and on the phone with his attorney at this point. When the police arrived, Joe looked out and he saw them. He told his lawyer that they were there. He thanked her again, said goodbye, and then the line went dead. A few minutes later, the police entered the shed and they found Joe already with no pulse. Joe died with pictures of Maria around him and a note in his journal blaming those who thought he was guilty for his death. He proclaimed his innocence and he complained that Tanya got a light sentence for killing his wife he was going to haunt those who made that deal with Tanya. There was some speculation amongst the police that Joe had changed his mind about taking his life that night. They based this on the position of the ladder and thought it looked like he may have attempted to pull it closer to himself and it slipped out from under him. There's also been some speculation that it was completely staged, and that's why Joe waited for the police to get there. He wanted them to find him on the ladder with the rope, but still alive. However, he then lost his footing waiting for them due to being intoxicated at the time. But this was speculation and conjecture not really backed up by the evidence. There is evidence Joe was suicidal, after his last visit with Maria in the hospital, and that he planned on this. Part of that evidence is that days before his death, Joe shot an hour-long video having his final say on things. He walked through the house and the shed. He talked about Maria and their memories. He laid blame solely at Tanya's feet. And he said he planned to take his own life. The video was shot by his brother, Gust. And then it came out that a week before Joe's death, Gust had reached out to television networks offering an exclusive final interview with Joe Corp. When this came out, Joe's first wife and his older children expressed a lot of upset that Gust apparently knew about Joe's plans to take his own life, but rather than stop him, Gust tried to monetize it. Then Gust went to court as the executor of Joe's estate to get permission to sell some things, and that video was one of them. But there was also an autobiography Joe had written and his diaries. These items were all being held in probate and Gust petitioned the court to sell them to the media. He said that he didn't want to wait for the whole probate process because then they would have much less monetary value. The judge agreed to allow Gust to sell them. However, the judge made it crystal clear that he was not making a moral statement on the sale of these items. He was simply supporting the best interests of the estate within the bounds of the law, which is his job. He did not want his ruling, however, to be seen as an endorsement. Gust wouldn't have been the only one to profit from the sale of these items. Yes, he would have profited, but Joe had all of it set up to split between a bunch of people. But the public objection to the sale of the video made news outlets incredibly hesitant to buy it. They didn't want the bad PR. And it seemed that even Gust had second thoughts about it after seeing how people reacted. And this wasn't the only money at stake that caused rifts in the family. Maria died before Joe. Therefore, if he inherited as her husband, her estate was now part of his estate. That then included splitting things between additional heirs, like his older children. But if Joe was effectively disinherited from Maria's estate, it would only be split between her two children. Now that turned into a years-long legal battle that is largely a private matter between the family. Coronial inquests were heard into both Joe and Maria's deaths, and the coroner found that Joe's death was on purpose. Taking the evidence on the whole, he believed Joe was worried about getting arrested again, this time for murder. He did not want to go to prison. In the inquest into Maria's death, the coroner found that Tanya Herman and Joe Corp were both responsible. The inquest is not a conviction or a trial, but These coronial inquests will often lead to trials when they point at who is responsible. However, in this case, Tanya was already in prison and Joe was dead, so it ended there. But after spending, what, two hours discussing this case, I still have some questions, and I don't know if they're ones we'll ever have the answer to. There are things that Tanya hasn't said or can't say because she doesn't know. For instance, when Maria was found, she wasn't wearing her crucifix or her wedding band, two things she always wore. Yet Tanya said she didn't take them off of her. Since Tanya led the police to every other scrap of evidence, there isn't any reason I can see to think she's lying here. So who took these items? And Tanya said the trunk was completely empty when she put Maria in there. In fact, it stuck out to her as odd, since most people keep at least something in the trunk, whether it's an umbrella or jumper cables or even a small first aid kit. Yet when Maria was found, there was a blanket in the trunk. Did Tanya just misremember this, or did someone go to that car, take the jewelry, and leave the blanket? Reportedly, two people went looking for the car. One was Tanya's brother, Steve, who said he did not find it. Even if he did, he did not have the keys, so he couldn't have opened the trunk. The other person was, according to Tanya, Joe. Again, this is just according to Tanya, but she said she had given him the keys and he said he was going to the car. The gardener at the Shrine of Remembrance who found Maria's vehicle reported seeing a man who matched Joe's description near Maria's car on that first day she was missing. He was sitting in the car and the car matched what Joe's car looked like. The gardener gave the description of what this man looked like the day after Maria was found, and he said he had never seen a picture of Joe before, and he certainly didn't know what Joe's car looked like. But the police are not convinced this was Joe. He had an alibi for the time frame the gardener claimed to have seen him, or someone who looked like him. Joe was at work, and he would have needed to leave work for an hour or two minimum, to be the man at the shrine, and there were no gaps in his day that were that long. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't go at a different time. According to Tanya, it was 1 or 2 a.m. when he told her he was going, but she does not know if he went or not. We will never know the full story of what happened, but if you believe Tanya, we do know most of it. In February 2010, a made-for-television movie called Wicked Love was broadcast with a lot of complaints from the family. This was not a documentary. This was a Lifetime-style, ripped-from-the-headlines, sensationalized version of the story. Gust wanted the station to not broadcast the movie at least in Victoria, until Damien was 18. He worried about the bullying that the then 15-year-old would experience in school, having the trauma of losing both of his parents played out in a dramatized version on television, particularly the details of their sex life. According to Gust, Channel 9 offered to pay for a weekend away for Damien during the time the movie aired. But the family wasn't worried about keeping Damien from seeing it. They were worried about his classmates. After a weekend out of town, Damien still had to go to school, and who knows how many of the other children saw it. Laura, Maria's daughter, was also upset about some comments made by Rebecca Gibney, the actress who played Maria. In an interview, she talked about how playing Maria was a lot different than her best-known role as a mom on a sitcom. She said it was a lot sexier of a role in the sense that she wore more low-cut clothing. And then she referred to the role as fun. Had she been playing a fictional victim of a fictional crime, her comments would have been fine but Maria was a real person who was brutally murdered, and using a word like fun in regards to portraying her was offensive to Maria's children. And Tanya Herman had some thoughts on the movie as well. In a 2012 interview for the book Partners in Crime, Tanya said she was portrayed unfairly in the movie She said they got her name and her age right, and that was about all. In this interview, Tanya also expressed remorse again for what happened. She did put the blame on Joe for manipulating her and used the word brainwashed. A year after the interview in 2013, Tanya was back in the news having applied for permission to marry a woman named Nicole Muscat, who she met in prison. While marriage between same-sex couples was not yet legal in Victoria, they did have the registered domestic partnership option. The corrections department said no for two reasons. One was that the relationship was too short, and the other was the amount of time left on their sentences. Nicole would be getting out soon, and Tanya was eligible for parole the next year, but may not get out for three more. But the following year, on February 14th, 2014, nine years almost on the dot, after being arrested, Tanya was released from prison on parole. Nicole picked her up. And after nine years, Maria Corp's case finally stopped making headlines. This case has so many issues around it, and like I said last week, it turned out to be a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. There was so much aftermath in court cases and fights over wills and this movie that it's hard not to think about the co-victims in this case. Maria was the victim, but her children were co-victims. Joe's children were as well, and Tanya's children. And of course, it goes out from there to parents and siblings. The long-term generational impact of what Tanya Herman did cannot be overstated. I'm not a lock them up and throw away the key type. We've been over that on the show. I'm not in favor of very long sentences in most cases. But if we measure the impact of this crime against the nine years Tanya Herman spent in prison, it just seems to be grossly out of balance. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Crimelines True Crime. Crime Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com support. I also live stream two or three times a month on Get Vocal. To see my upcoming live stream schedule, follow the Get Vocal link in the show notes. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.